I'm Chuita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. There is radio silence when it comes to the question of accessible housing. If you consider that one in five Canadians lives with a disability, it's a shocking omission from public discourse. So not only are we not talking about accessible housing, clearly we aren't building it. This means that people with disabilities are forced to scramble and to make the most of a bad situation. It means that they're moving into houses or apartments which only partially meet their needs. Maybe not even that. Often people with disabilities have to renovate their homes at great personal expense. Other times, if the person is a tenant, for example, the lack of accessible housing can result in costly and time-consuming human rights complaints. Today, we discuss accessible housing. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joita Gupta. I'm joining you from the Accessible Media Studios in Toronto. Today, I'm wearing a red shirt with three-quarter sleeves and a square neck. The shirt is red with black stripes. My black hair is tied back in a ponytail, and I also have a pair of black headphones. We're talking about housing here on The Pulse. In the second of three episodes dedicated to the topic, I'm delighted to welcome to the program Tracy O'Dell. Tracy O'Dell is the past chair of Citizens with Disabilities Ontario, and she's also the second vice chair of the Council of Canadians with Disabilities. Hello, Tracy. Welcome to The Pulse. It's really great to have you on the program. Hello. I'm really happy to be asked to be here. Tracy, what is accessible housing? Well, that's a big question. Um, it does not mean that it's close to the bus stop. <laughs> it means that it will assist people with a number of different um, types of disabilities to be able um, to get in and out of their house or apartment, um, you know, without uh, barriers, and that would ha have the features needed to provide that. Now, what got you thinking about accessible housing? I don't just mean as an individual, but you're also a part of the Accessible Housing Network. So there must have been something that made you realize that accessible housing isn't just a nice thing to have, but it is really essential for all people with disabilities. Well, um, myself, I, I had to go live in an institution as a child, like a residential institution. Um, and so upon turning 18... That was the time we had to leave because it was a children's hospital and um, there was nowhere to go, right? Like things were not accessible. Like it was, you know, dark ages. There were dinosaurs roaming the earth when I was like a, an 18-year-old. But um, just nothing was out there. We didn't have the, the, the laws that we have or, you know, anything to, to get that happening. Um, but as luck would have it, um, there was um, a demonstration project that was being done through uh, the Ministry of Community and Social Services. Um, and so through that, I was able to land a spot sharing an apartment with um, uh, two other ladies and live in the community, like outside of the hospital. And um, I have a physical disability. I use a wheelchair and I need help with everything from going to the bathroom to, you know, being fed, fed like the whole thing. Um, and the services were wrapped around that housing and kind of incorporated in. So there was a, a space for the staff to hang out 
and then you called them when you needed them or you booked time that you needed. So um, then, you know, shortly after that, the government stopped building that kind of housing project. And so I've just always been concerned about where people like me will go, like after they're done their rehabilitation or they come out of a hospital or they just, you know, they move here, maybe they're a newcomer, like, you know, where can they go and, and live? So uh, I've just always been involved with that in a volunteer basis. And most recently um, in my role with Citizens with Disabilities Ontario, um, we decided to join um, the Accessible Housing Network along with uh, numerous other organizations um, and it's starting to get uh, representation coast to coast. So, And for those of us who don't know, what is the Accessible Housing Network? Yes, it is a network, so it's not um, registered with the government as a charity or anything like that. It's just a network of organizations, um, and uh, I think there's some individuals who are just volunteering. But um, you know, we have a list of things going on 50 or so organizations, um, from the Toronto Council on Aging to Spinal Cord Injury, um, Canadian Federation of the Blind is on there. Um, the ODSP Action Coalitions, like lots of organizations uh, like that. So we, um, some are more involved in a, a leadership role with the organization, and um, and others are, you know, there are members and they just help to promote and support um, things. So, for example. Um, you know, whenever there's an election, we um, attempt to, well, not time, but we um, try to get pledges from the various um, MPs or MPPs or, uh, you know, anybody running for office right now. We've got the, the mayor's um, election going on in Toronto, where I live. So, yes, yeah, so you reach out to MPs and MPPs just to keep them in the loop and get their support around accessible housing. But right now, there's also uh, an election happening in Toronto. It's actually a by-election for the mayor of Toronto. And as we know, the mayor of Toronto has a lot of power when it comes to the development of housing in the city. Is that the kind of thing you're getting involved with as well? Um, well, what we are doing as a network is we are um, contacting the people who are running for mayor and ask them to sign our housing pledge that they will support um, having 100% um, accessible housing. And we are defining that with, in, in conjunction with universal accessible design. Um, and so um, I can explain that in a bit because that's worth explaining. But um, we're just trying to get them to pledge that they will support um, that. Um, and there's, there's a number of things on the pledge that... Uh, I'll be able to read out to you if you want. Well, you've certainly got your work cut out, I have to say, because you've got, let's see, 101 candidates and one dog running for mayor in Toronto. So you're going to have your hands full with that. But Tracy, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You talked about accessible housing versus universally designed housing. Uh, universally designed housing is also known as European housing, or so I've heard. What is the difference between the two? A universal universally designed house um, will have um, features built in, including some features that you can add later if you want to. So for instance, the walls in, in the bathroom will have reinforcements. So if later 
you want to put a handrail there, you're able to do that. Or um, closets will be stacked, like say if you're in a house, you know, you'll have a closet on the main floor that lines up with the closet up above. So later on, if you want to turn that into an elevator shaft, you can do that because behind the walls, they've built in the rails and whatever might be necessary to do that. So then if you need the elevator, then that's up to you to put that in place. And um, it would have other features like, you know, the, the braille and so on, that would be um, help, helpful. And then if people needed more than that, they could add more of it than that. So it takes you through the, it's more than just being able to visit like someone else's house, because there's also visitable housing that we hear about, which means you can go to someone's house and hang around on the main floor, maybe a bathroom there, but you can't live there. There might not necessarily be a bedroom on that floor, for instance, or an office on that floor. So it's not any good for you to live in. And it doesn't have um, necessarily the, the background things that I, I talked about with universal design, like the things that are already and waiting, right? If you wanted to put an electric door, um, then the wire wing would be there behind the frame of the door. And so you buy your electric door and it's installed. The wiring piece is already ready to plug in to your door. You know, in Toronto, if you look outside my window, like in downtown Toronto where I live, you will see cranes in the sky. There's so much construction happening. And I suspect the same is true for cities across the country where we're seeing this construction boom. So with all of this construction happening, how much attention are developers paying to universal design? You talked about all these great principles and ideas included in universal design. Are developers listening to you? Um, very few will. I think there's um, a couple that are waking up to it. Um, Daniels has been very prominent in um, promoting um, their work to have um, accessible um, units within their condominiums. Um, but then again, not everyone's in a position to buy a condominium, right, at, at this time. I mean, it's just prices are through the roof. They've always been difficult for people to achieve, but, you know, definitely, um, you know, they're, they're quite high. But um, they are interested, and they're interested too in, in um, they've gotten architects involved in this, which is brilliant. Because then when people are going through school to learn to be architects, they will be learning about this and it'll be an idea that they can present to, you know, whoever they are building for, you know, say, hey, if you thought about this, you know, because it'll make, it'll make their units much more attractive in the future because it's not going to be long that we're going to see housing prices totally reverse, you know, because with the, the bulge in the population, you're going to have people getting older, leaving their houses as they are right now, and they're going to be more and more and more on the market. But with universal design, a person wouldn't have to leave their house, you know, to go to somewhere more accessible. Like, that would already be there. So if they wanted to stay at home, you know, for another five years, 10 years, 20 years, and, you know, they were healthy enough to do that, they could do it because they didn't have to worry just about, you know, the basic accessibility of their house. You know, it's a big thing, especially as we hear a lot of this rhetoric about staying in at home and aging in place. 
it's certainly a desirable outcome to have seniors avoid as much as possible the nursing home situation or long-term care and stay in their own homes. If nothing else, it, it saves the healthcare system a lot of money. But again, you point out, and I agree with you 100%, not everyone can afford to buy a house or a condominium. So what is the landscape like for tenants? Because if you've got a lot of tenants with disabilities, how many options are there for accessible or universally designed apartments out there for the renters who we're talking about? Don't get me started. I bet you could put them on um, an Excel spreadsheet and not, you know, like not get past a thousand individual units. Like there's not that many because um, in in a building that they um, approve to be accessible, as long as a certain percent of the units are accessible, that is good enough. Um, and sometimes, you know, depending, sometimes that's the kind of thing that the city will, you know, want. But um, projects that do aim to provide accessibility only go for a certain percent. And that's very difficult. It's like, you know, if, if there's a lottery and you want to win that prize, if you have one ticket, that's your only chance at that prize. But if you are in a position to have, you know, a million tickets, you've got a much better chance. And uh, an apartment that's accessible is like those those tickets. If you can only have an accessible apartment, you are reduced to just having that one ticket. Whereas anybody else who doesn't require it has a choice of like, you know, thousands, millions of other units. So anyone that became vacant, they could go into. But if you have to wait for an accessible one, um, many uh, many apartments could have people move. Um, but the accessible one, you might not have a change of, uh, of a tenant in there and you're waiting. So waiting lists to get in an accessible apartment that, um, you know, is on, on a list that someone know where they are. Um, it's hard to find them, um, but it's very difficult. It's 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 near impossible to find something that's accessible. Tracy, I really want to address the financial side of this equation because for a lot of people, housing is their biggest expense, and we know that housing is becoming increasingly unaffordable. And when we talk about housing affordability, it's not just about, at least for people with disabilities, it's not just about the mortgage or the cost of rent, but also if people are modifying their homes to make them more accessible, the cost of some of those home renovations. What programs or uh, projects are in place to make housing more affordable for people with disabilities, whether they're renters or whether they're homeowners, and what sort of projects exist to help with the costs of home renovation so that if someone with a disability is having to make modifications, they're not taking a financial hit because of it. I'm um, aware of only one program. It's administered by the March of Dimes, the government, I think, is to do it directly. Um, and it has a, a certain limit um, I don't know the latest limit. I'd have to look it up. But it used to be like, say, $15,000 to permit you to um, renovate your home. So that's not going to do a lot of renovations. If you have to widen a couple of doorways or if you want to put in um, um, fire alarms that are, you know, audio and visual bulbs or, you know, something like, forget, you know, a ramp, even elevators are so expensive. Um, that money might 
not do everything we want. And it's also well, Tracy. I have to say, you're painting a very gloomy picture here, and it is gloomy. I think we all understand the scope of the problem. But I do have to stop you here just for a moment. Yeah, no, no, it it is a really, really gloomy picture. But Tracy, I've only got a few minutes with you, and I want to ask you, where do we go from here? What sort of solutions would you like to see put forward to address the gaps in accessible housing for people with disabilities? Well, I think that we need a commitment, you know, from the people that make decisions that they're going to support um, having 100% um, housing that is um, accessible, um, to the standard of universal design, which is already, you know, um, laid out uh, at the federal level. So we need to commit to do that, first of all. Um, if they're in a position to issue permits, um, which the, happens at the municipal uh, level, then the condition of that permit should be that all the units should be accessible um, and not because you're going to fill the place up with, you know, all people with disabilities, but for that ticket, you know, so that you, you're not restricted to just holding one ticket if you did want to move into that, that building. And th that would have to happen at 100% accessibility for probably 50 to 100 years to make up for the time we have lost so far um, in being able to have accessible housing. So... We do need that commitment so that things that are built new from fresh um, are going to be built accessible, like no questions asked. That happens in Australia now. They have passed a law that they have to do this with all of their new buildings. And the other piece, I think, is um, supporting people who want to do some renovations, you know, so that they can make their home more livable to stay there longer. Um, and also for new builders to, you know, pick up the, the chores and, and get this going and understand that it's going to be easy to sell um, units that have um, accessible features compared to units who don't, because we're starting to realize as more people are getting older, it might not be myself or it might not be, you know, my mother or my sister, but it might be um, another relative or it might be my partner. It might be, you know, someone else who is going to need that. And um, so, you know, people will be used to um, thinking ahead, I think. Um, and of course, also, we need to have uh, some support for people who can't even begin to make that rental payment. So people that have um, ODSP, um, you know, um, would have a housing allowance that matches what they need to pay for their rent, you know, and um, more housing that's, you know, purposely built by the city to be affordable for people with a variety of uh, human conditions, right? Like a disability is a human condition. If you live long enough, you're going to inherit at least one, right? So that would be good, yeah. I want to leave you with one last thought, and you could maybe offer your reflections on it. Let's say, Tracy, that you find an accessible home. No, scratch that. You find a universally designed home, and it's affordable, and it's perfect. You think to yourself, okay, Tracy, this is where I'm going to live for the rest of my life. And then you move in, and you realize, hang on a minute, there is no groceries to be found. The closest grocery store is 20 minutes away. The shopping mall is nowhere in sight. I don't have access to the bus stop, and there's very little public transit here. And 
there isn't even a sidewalk. So come winter, you're basically stuck at home. And so I ask you this, when we talk about accessible housing, how much of that conversation comes down to designing inclusive neighborhoods and communities? How big a piece of the puzzle is that? Well, that's a very good question. And I think they go hand in hand, right? Um, otherwise, you're just a prisoner in your own house. You know, one way you're a prisoner left outside the house, you can't get out, get in rather, um, or you can be prison inside. So they do go hand in hand. You know, one or the other is not a solution. Tracy, thank you so much for speaking to me on the program today. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Have a great one. That was Tracy O'Dell, who joined us to talk about accessible housing. We'll have a couple of links on the description in the description below so that you have a chance to look at some of the websites and programs that Tracy talked about today. So do check out the description. And of course, if you haven't already done so, we highly encourage you to subscribe to The Pulse so you can catch this and future episodes so you're not missing out on anything. Well, that's all the time we have for today's episode about The Pulse, but we've got the third of three episodes to get to about disability and housing. I hope you'll tune in next week when I talk to Angela Fox, who is a podcaster and the author of a book, My My Blue Front Door, where Angela's talking about her journey as a wheelchair user and how she bought her first home. There's a couple of ways in which you can contact us here on the program with your feedback. You can give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Don't forget to leave your permission to play the audio on the program. You can write us an email, feedback at ami.ca, or find us on Twitter at AMI-audio and use the hashtag PulseAMI. You can also find me on Twitter at Joita Gupta. My videographer today has been Matthew McGurk. Mark Aflalo is the technical producer. Ryan Delahanty is the coordinator for podcasts at AMI-audio. And Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. I've been your host, Joyita Gupta. Thanks for listening.